The Greeks had always been looking for the perfect man. And they created myths, images of what the perfect man would look like. And throughout Greek mythology, they have the gods of the Greeks, which are simply forms of amplified humanity. Able to travel great distances, able to have great powers. The perfect man is seen in their gods. But all of them, because they had human attributes that were negative, fell short of perfection. And so more stories, philosophies, and myths were written about who would be and how a perfect man would be like. Luke writes very technically for the mind of the Greeks, showing that Jesus Christ is the Son of Man, a title that Luke mentions more than any other gospel writer. The Son of Man, the perfect man, God's man. And he shows that Jesus is not just a good man, he is the God-man, God in human flesh, the bringing together of the divine and the human. That's what made Jesus so unique. Theologians have a term for this, the theanthropic Son of God. That's the term they use. It's from two Greek words, theos, which means God, and anthropos, which means man. You put those two together, and you have the adjective theanthropic, God in human flesh, perfectly God, perfectly man. But the emphasis of Luke is different from the emphasis of the other gospel writers, especially John, whose emphasis is that Jesus was divine. Luke knows that he's divine, but his emphasis is that while he was divine, he was human. Oftentimes, as Christians, we push the humanity out of Christ and we're constantly reminding ourselves of his divinity because we feel, well, after all, we have to defend Jesus Christ's person against all of the cults who would make him less than God, like the Jehovah Witnesses, like the Mormons. But you should know that the first heresy that erupted in the church was not the denial of the divinity of Christ, but the denial of the humanity of Christ. It was called Gnosticism. They said that Jesus was an emanation that he was not a man. The Gnostics said that whenever Jesus would walk in the sand, he would not leave footprints. He could walk through walls even before the resurrection, and he would appear in places because he really wasn't a man. And Luke is showing he was very man of man, and yet he was very God of God, the theanthropic Son of God. Now we are reading about his birth, and Luke expands the narrative of his birth more than any other gospel writer. He covers the virgin birth, the shepherds in Bethlehem, and all of the songs of the birth, unlike anyone else covers them, in great detail. And so we've gone through this section. This is our third week, I believe, a little bit more slowly than we probably will the rest of the gospel, although you never know. But we are in chapter 1. Jesus has been born. He's brought into the temple and two classic old folks are there. I love to see an older person who's walked with the Lord and has been tempered by experience and years. Tempered by years of waiting on God. There's nothing like it. It's so rich. The character is deep. They've not gotten bitter. They've gotten better. It's great to see. Old age is feared by a lot of people. Have you noticed that? We all get scared. Now, of course, when you're young, you want to be older. When you're older, you want to be younger. Up to a certain age, you want to appear like you're really cool and macho and older so people respect you. But there comes this strange transition point. I don't know exactly when it is, but when you're young, it's a compliment to say, you don't look your age, you look much older. Well, thank you. You tell that to an older person, and you will not win any friends. It's always a compliment to say, oh, you look so much younger than you really are. People are afraid of growing old. It's been said that there are seven ages of man. Spills, drills, thrills, bills, <laughs> ills, pills, and then wills. Those are pretty accurate. 
After the thrills part is when the fear comes in. The bills, the ills, the pills, and the wills. But there are people in the scripture that really encourage me. If I can grow old like that, so be it. David was one. He'd been through a lot, good and bad times. But he has a beautiful verse of scripture in Psalm 37. In Psalm 37, verse 25, he said, I was young, and now I am old. And I have never seen the righteous forsaken, nor have I seen God's people begging for bread. What a great perspective. Here's a guy who's walked with God, made mistakes, but in his old age he said, When I was young and now that I'm old, I've known that God takes care of his people. What a great perspective of trust to have that only comes through age. We make a mistake in our society by diminishing the importance of the aged, whereas in other societies we extol those. The older, the better, the wiser. Glean from them. In our society we say, move over, it's a new generation. It's our turn to run the world. I should say it's our turn to mess up the world. I think we ought to listen to those who have gone before us and walked before us. Caleb, what a classic guy. They cross over the Jordan River. They're in Hebron. He's 85 years old. He walks up to Josh and he says, Now, Josh, you remember that you and I were the only two dudes that walked across into the Promised Land and gave people a good report and encouraged the people. Everybody else flaked out. And we wandered around with all of them for 40 years at the expense of their sin. But you remember that Moses promised me a portion of the land, and there it is. And he said, I'm 85 years old today, Joshua. And I'm as strong today as I was 40 years ago when we came the first time. I'm ready to fight the giants. I'm ready to take what God has given me. Let's go for it. It'd be great to be around Caleb. It put a lot of us to shame. 85 years old, oh man, I'm... You know, 39, I'm getting tired. Caleb, chill. Uh, Not Caleb. He'd go for it. Two others that are examples are mentioned in this chapter. Simeon, an aged man, one who had been waiting in messianic expectation. Because God promised him, I don't know how, but we know God promised him that he would not die until he was able to see the Messiah born into the world. So he'd go into the temple probably every day and he'd just cruise around glancing, seeing people. Lord, is that the person? Oh, maybe that's him. Finally, one day he walked in the temple and the Spirit of God spoke to his heart. That's him. And he walked over to Joseph and Mary and probably said, hey, can I hold your baby? He raised that little child up. It was the time of its dedication. He said, Lord, I can die in peace now. You've let me see your salvation. I'm sure Joseph was just sort of dropping his jaw. Huh? What is this all about? And he prophesied of what this little baby would be. Joseph and Mary didn't have the full revelation yet. Remember, all the things that happened to them up to this point, it says Mary kept them and pondered them in her heart. What does this mean? And then Simeon said to Mary, and a sword will pierce through your own heart also. Speaking of the fact that she would be there at the cross the foot of her son, seeing him die. Pierce your heart. Then there's a woman that's also mentioned in this chapter. We didn't get to her yet. We're going to tonight. Her name is Anna. Her name means grace. 84 years young. Every day she went to the temple. She just hung out at church all the time. She was also waiting for the expectation of Israel, and she was a prophetess. Now, I find that interesting. She's mentioned that in this section. Let's look at it. There was one, Anna, a prophetess, the daughter of Phanuel. We don't know who that is. We just figure that it was somebody important that they knew about, of the tribe of Asher. She was of great age. It's a good way to put it. It's better than the King James, well stricken in years, of great age. It just sounds a little more respectful. She lived with her husband seven years from her virginity. This woman was a widow. 
of about 84 years who did not depart from the temple but served God with fastings and prayers night and day. She was married, and I guess what happened is about seven years into her marriage, a tragedy occurred. Her husband died, and she never remarried. She decided instead that she would sort of plant herself as a fixture in the temple in Jerusalem. She would just be there. She'd be praying and worshiping, fasting. Now, in the Old and the New Testament, though they're not mentioned much, they are there, and that is the office of the prophetess. We hear of prophets. Some of you may be uncomfortable, but it's true. There were prophetesses. Deborah was a prophetess. That was her reputation throughout Israel. Huldah, mentioned in 1 Kings, I believe, or Chronicles, one of those books, was also a prophetess, and there were a couple of others in the New Testament. And then all four daughters of Philip the Evangelist were prophetesses. What a family. Come home from work, your four daughters are there prophesying. Now, in the New Testament, by the way, Luke gives very much room to the ministry of women. He mentions women more in his book than any other writer in the New Testament mentions the role of women in the life of Jesus Christ. In the entire Bible, there's only 12 widows that are mentioned. Luke mentions three in his book alone. He's very, this book is woman-friendly, female-friendly. They had a great place. You know, some people give God a bad rap. Oh, God's a male chauvinist. Women had no place in the New Testament. I beg your pardon. Only people who haven't read it could say that. And the fact that there were prophetesses meant that these ladies spoke the word of God. They weren't pastors. Paul said, I suffer not a woman to teach, but it was in the context of usurping authority. Or she shouldn't usurp it. But there's many times for teachers and prophetesses in the Old and the New Testament. John, um, excuse me, uh, William Booth, that's the guy who started the Salvation Army. Is that right? General William Booth. He used many women when he first started his evangelistic ministry to the inner cities of America. And some of the church got down on him for that. And he said, how come you use so many women? He said, some of my best men are women. <laughs> Where would the church be without the servant heart of women? who make themselves, I find, often more available than do men. Here's a gal who's just hanging out in the temple. And the timing is perfect. She walks in the temple at exactly the right moment when Simeon is there prophesying over Jesus Christ. And coming in, in that instant, she gave thanks to the Lord and spoke of him to all those who looked for the redemption in Jerusalem. She was an evangelist, not only a prophetess. She started going around and telling everybody who was also waiting for the Messiah, he's here, he's here, he's over there. This is the promised Messiah. Just, what a great gal to hang out with. Perfect timing. By the way, God's timing is always perfect. He's never late. Sometimes you wonder, don't you? God, come on, Lord, do something now. Lord, you had a perfect opportunity last week to do something. And now you blew your chance. Thank God we're not running things. You look back in your life and you go, man, that was perfect timing. How that event coincided with the other event and that person stepped into the room at just the right time and then hindsight is twenty twenty. She came in at just the right time. Now when they had performed all things according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee to their own city, Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. Now Luke includes certain things, but he also leaves out certain things. He leaves out the entire episode of the flight into Egypt mentioned by Matthew. Because Herod sought to kill Jesus Christ, an angel warned Joseph, split, get out of here, go to Egypt. 
And they were in Egypt until Herod died, and the angel said, now go back home, and they went back to Nazareth. That whole episode is skipped. He moves right from the temple into the boyhood of Jesus Christ. Jesus remains at home under his parents, living in Nazareth until he's 30 years old. And at 30 years of age, he makes the trek from Nazareth to the Jordan River where John the Baptist is baptizing. Nazareth is his home. It is also something that gives him identity. At the time that he lived, there was not one Jesus. There was many people named Yeshua, Joshua. They lived all over the place. It was a common Jewish name. It was not singled out for him alone. He was called Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. That's how he was known. His last name was son of Joseph. Yeshua ben Yosef, the son of Joseph. Jesus of Nazareth. Now, John gives us a classic episode of how people thought about Nazareth. They didn't look at it very highly. It was the backwaters of the Roman Empire. One day, Jesus is by the Sea of Galilee, where he eventually moved from Nazareth to Capernaum after he began his ministry. And he's walking there one day, and he calls several disciples. He says, follow me. And so they follow him. He comes to a guy by the name of Philip. Philip was from the town of Bethsaida, not too far from Capernaum on the shore of Galilee. He said, Philip, follow me. And Philip started following Jesus. Philip was a friend of Nathaniel went to Nathanael and was all excited. He said, we have found him whom Moses in the law and the prophets wrote about, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said, with all pessimism, can anything good come out of Nazareth? That's what people thought of Nazareth. Nazareth was on the trade route of the Via Maris that extended from Egypt through Galilee through Mesopotamia. Because there was much contact with Gentile traffic, because it was a small village nestled up in the hills overlooking the valley of Armageddon, really, 14 miles from the Sea of Galilee, it was pushed back. It was in the Galilee of the Gentiles area. It was despised. They thought, you know, these people are hicks that live there. Nothing good can come out of Nazareth. But something did come out of Nazareth. It was Jesus, the son of Joseph. So the child grew, became strong in spirit, filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. His parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of Passover. I find that an insight into the character of Joseph and Mary. They went every year. They didn't have to go every year. It was required that if you were Jewish and you were male, you had to go to three feasts in Jerusalem. Remember Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles. That's if you lived within a 20-mile parameter of Jerusalem. They lived about 60 to 70 miles north. They didn't have to go. They could go once in a lifetime and celebrate Passover in their area. They went every year. And it wasn't just Joseph. It was the family that went. It was an insight, really, into the devotion of this family to worship of God. Now, when he was 12 years old, that's Jesus, was now 12 years old, he went up to Jerusalem according to the custom of the feast. Today, a, a child that is Jewish, a son, is bar mitzvahed at age 13. It is thought that back then, at age 12, they were bar mitzvah. They became a son of the law. They were given the tefillin, the phylacteries, the law of God upon their forehead and their hand. They wore the shawl. They were able to open up the scrolls of the law and read it. They were considered an adult member of the Jewish community. Jesus is 12. He's going with the family to Jerusalem. When they had finished the days, that is, the days of the feast, the Passover was finished, as they returned, the boy Jesus lingered behind in Jerusalem. And Joseph and his mother did not know it. The feast is over, time to go home. But Jesus lingers. I like that. I like that as much as I like 
seeing so many of you linger when church is over. I've had so many people come as visitors and say, I've never seen a place like this. In our church, when church is over, they can't wait to leave. They're out the door. In your church, people, they, they, they hang around in pockets. They talk all hours. They pray together in groups. And it's true. You know, they have to dim the lights you know, after a while to say, okay, you know, it's really late. Time to clear out. Got to secure the building. I love that, that lingering mentality. Why leave? Just enjoy the fellowship. Jesus lingering in the temple. But Joseph and his mother did not know it, but supposing him to have been in the company, they went a day's journey and sought him among their relatives and acquaintances. When they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem seeking him. You might read that and say, I'm puzzled. Weren't Joseph and Mary good parents enough to keep an eye on their 12-year-old boy that they'd be gone a whole day from Jerusalem? And they go, what happened to our kid? We might think that because we're unaware of how they traveled. People would travel in caravans, groups of relatives, groups of friends, sometimes the entire village. Villages weren't all that big. They traveled together. And caravans would set the women and the children first. They would lead the way. They would lead the way so that they could set the pace. If the men would lead the way, they might go too fast and... The wives and the kids would be saying, man, quit going so fast. Hold it up a bit. So the women and the young children would set the pace. The young men would stay behind in case they were attacked, as caravans sometimes were, especially on the road from Jericho to Jerusalem. They'd stay behind. They'd watch out. And sometimes the groups would split up. When they would leave Jerusalem, women and the children would go first with some of the young men for protection, oftentimes the men would stay and wait a day. They'd have a a specific place where they would meet on the evening or the following evening and set up camp. I'll meet you at the camp over in Jericho tomorrow evening, about this time. And the men would often go second in leaving the feast because they thought, "We'll, we'll catch up with you. We'll have a faster pace. You guys go on ahead. We'll see you later. Now, what probably happened is Joseph assumed that Jesus was with the neighbors or relatives, probably with Mary. He's hanging out with his friends and family and people from the village, thinking Jesus is up ahead with Mary. Jesus thought, I don't know where, uh, Mary thought, I don't know where Jesus is. He's probably back in Jerusalem with Joseph. Each thinking Jesus was with the other. It was not uncommon at all. Anyway, they got together and they finally realized Jesus isn't around. They were scared, as any parent would be scared, of course, thinking the worst has happened to my child. I want you to notice this, though in verse 43, the reference is to Joseph and his mother. Not the father and mother of Jesus, but Joseph and his mother, because Mary was the mother of Jesus in the flesh. Joseph was not. He was the foster father. Jesus was born of a virgin conceived by the Holy Spirit. Verse 45, when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem seeking him. Now so it was that after three days they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. This is one conversation I wish was recorded, don't you? I'd love to hear what questions Jesus would ask these learned sages of Israel. Probably questions that they had difficulty answering. It'd be fun to watch him squirm. And all who heard him were astonished at his understanding and answers. So when they saw him, they were amazed. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you done this to us? Moms, you can relate, can't you? It's your reaction. You don't mean to be rough and abrasive with your kids, but when you're scared, you know, why have you done this? Why didn't you tell us? You you, you want to protect them, but you often get angry at them. Son, why have you done this to us? Look, your father and I, she calls Joseph your father and I, though Joseph was 
the foster father, your father and I have sought you anxiously. And he said to them, why is it that you sought me? Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? Notice the contrast. A very marked contrast written on purpose for us. Your father and I have been looking for you. Jesus corrects her. I'm about my father's business. This is my father. This is why I have come here in the temple doing my father's business. But they did not understand the statement which he spoke to them. Now this is the last mention, by the way, of Joseph in the entire New Testament. It is thought because of this that Joseph died before Jesus went into full-time public ministry at age 30. We don't know how. We don't know why. We figure that something happened to him. He died because at the wedding feast of Canaan, the first public miracle Jesus performs in John chapter 2, Mary is present. Usually her husband would be there too, but he's not. Joseph is not present. Mary is alone there with her son Jesus and his disciples. So this is, he fades now off the pages of Scripture. They did not understand the statement which he spoke to them. Then he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was subject to them. But his mother kept all these things in her heart. Mary had that little file that would be good for us to keep, a file like that in our mind and heart. The file could be entitled, Wait for Further Information. It's a good file to have because there's a lot of things in life that happen that you don't understand. And instead of reacting... You should respond sometimes by waiting for further information. Let's just see what this is all about. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. What an excellent example Jesus is here for the young person. A balanced life, growing physically, but growing spiritually. There was that balance of emphasis in his life. A lot of times young people will make the excuse, man, I'm too young to serve God. I've got a lot of fun to have. I'll wait till I'm an old fogey and then I'll serve God. And then as you get those wrinkles and have those kids and you go from thrills to bills, you again, you know, I'm too busy. and I've got bills to pay, kids to raise. I don't have time for church, the Bible, and all that stuff. Solomon was right. But he learned the hard way. He tried to fill his life with every conceivable pleasure and thrill as a young man. And he continued into middle age until he was old, until he finally said to young people in chapter 12 of Ecclesiastes, Seek now thy creator in the days of your youth while you've got vigor. Young people, set a habit and a pattern now in your life. Seek him now. So it becomes the habit and pattern of your life to seek the Lord throughout your life. Why waste half of your life? Why waste the young years of your life and do your own thing and then say, Oh, I'll turn to God later. It's a wasted life. I've told you before about Dwight L. Moody's perspective on this. He would often measure salvation in holes and halves. And he came home one night and his wife said, How many were saved? He said, Two and a half. And what he meant by that is two kids and one adult. And his rationale is that that adult gave his life to Christ in his adult years because he's wasted half of his life on the flesh. The kid started when he was young, gave his whole life to Jesus Christ. That's a good perspective. Seek now your creator in the days of your youth. Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with men, with God and men. Now, in the 15th year... Of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate, being governor of Judea, Herod being tetrarch, which means ruler of a fourth, of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Iturea and the region of Trachonitis and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, that's not Texas, that's up in Galilee, Annas and Caiaphas being the high priest, the word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias in the wilderness. Notice how tech Luke is in his dating process. Remember, he's a Greek. He's very thorough. There's more classical Greek in attention to detail than any other gospel writer. And he's a physician. Trained with a scientific mind, he dates very specifically. Beginning in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar. Now we can date that. That means it was the year between August of 28 A.D. and August of 29 A.D. 
because we have Luke's fine detailed dating process, we know exactly when this took place. He mentioned several people, and I want to just give a little background of what's going on in Rome and in Israel at this time. First of all, it mentions Tiberius Caesar, the reign of Tiberius Caesar. Caesar is a title, not a name. You know that. There were many Caesars after Julius came on the scene and passed away. All of the emperors of Rome were called Caesar. Tiberius's full name was Tiberius Claudia Nero. He succeeded his stepfather, Caesar Augustus. He landed upon the throne. He was known for a very autocratic rule, much like his stepfather, Augustus. He was in charge of Rome. Caesar Augustus is mentioned in the previous chapter at the birth of Jesus Christ. He's the guy that said, let all the world be taxed. He was the pawn of God at that time. Now his stepson uh, is on the throne. Then we have mentioned uh, Pontius Pilate. Interesting guy. For a long time, the scientific archaeologists dismissed portions of the New Testament because Pontius Pilate was mentioned. And they said, Pontius Pilate, who's he? We don't have any real hard ironclad evidence. Oh, we have a, writings of that Josephus character, but I mean real secular scientific evidence. And they said, Pontius Pilate was just a figment of one's imagination. He never really existed. Until several years ago, they started doing some digs where all of the procurators of Judea were stationed in Caesarea by the sea. Some of you have been there with us on tours to Israel. And in their digs, they found a stone that had the name of Tiberius Caesar and Pontius Pilate, who was the procurator of Judea, under the reign of Tiberius Caesar. And then the archaeologists started saying, well, then this portion of the Bible is correct. <laughs> Duh. We knew that all along before you jokers caught up with us. Pontius Pilate, well, he was clever. He was probably a type A personality. It is thought that to be procurator of Judea, as long as he was, five straight years, he had to do a lot of ladder climbing to get up there. It was a designated honor, and it was a challenge. He was in charge for five years, and he made a few mistakes. He had a few problems. His first problem came as soon as he got on the throne. Now, the, the Roman procurator, the guy in charge of the territory of Israel, was stationed not in Jerusalem, but he was stationed by the Mediterranean Sea, a beautiful spot. Sea breezes, the surf is good there in some times of the year. I've gone surfing there several years ago. And, and it's a beautiful place to hang out. During the festivals, the procurator would move from the amphitheater and the whole area of Caesarea by the sea to Jerusalem, where a special palace was constructed called Antonia, the Antonia Fortress, connected to the temple area to watch with all of his soldiers what the Jews were doing at their feasts. The Jews hated the Romans. A riot might break out, especially during a festival. So it was, it was time to watch, to make sure that if there's a riot, we can quell the riot by force. As soon as Pontius Pilate came into power, and he came into Jerusalem, he made special ensigns, banners, with the image of Tiberius Caesar upon them and had all of his soldiers parade through Rome with this ensign. Now that offended the Jews because the Jews see any kind of image as idolatry. You can't have the image of a man or a beast or anything. And so they demanded, Pilate, you get rid of those ensigns. Pilate said, who are you? I'm in charge here. He herded all of them into the amphitheater at Caesarea because that's where they came to protest it had his soldiers take out their swords at his command, hold it up to the throats of the men who were protesting. He said, one more word, and I'll open your neck. What they did is something he never expected. They got on the ground, opened their neck all the way, and said, cut it open, but we're not going to stop protesting. You get rid of those ensigns. When they saw that these Jews were willing to die for an image 
to get rid of it. He realized, I'm dealing with a very recalcitrant group of people, a very hardened group of people bent on their own ways. And so he removed them. He lost face with them. Second mistake came a few years later when he raided the temple treasury of the Jews and stole money from them to build an aqueduct to bring water into Jerusalem. They appealed, the Jews appealed their case to Caesar in Rome and, you know, strike two. You know, that's two. If you were here today for this morning's sermon, you understand what that means. Strike three came at the end of his five-year reign when he had special shields made for the Antonius soldiers, again, with the representation of Tiberius on them. Again, you think, come on, learn your lesson. They appealed directly to Caesar in Rome. By force, Caesar commanded that the ensigns, excuse me, the shields be removed, even though they had Tiberius's image on them in honor of him. He thought, what are you trying to do? Start a riot? Get rid of them. So he's walking on thin ice. And at the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, he knows he's walking on thin ice, and the people know he's walking on thin ice. That's why they said, John records it, when he was about to let Jesus go. They said, if you let this man go, you're not the friend of Caesar. It was a threat. We're going to tell Caesar on you if you don't get rid of this insurrectionist who we think has stood up against Rome. Or you're no friend of Caesar. He went, ooh. He realized they've got him. And that's one of the reasons that motivated him to put Jesus on the cross. So that's Pontius Pilate. Then two Herods are mentioned in this verse. And all I can say that if you ever study Herod, you're in for a challenge. His family was a mess. Herod the Great, and he's not mentioned here, his two sons are. Because after Herod the Great died, and after he died, the Holy Family came from Egypt back to Nazareth. But he was a paranoid guy, Herod the Great. He divided his kingdom between his three sons. Now, he had 12 sons, but he took three sons, Philip, Antipas, and Archelaus, and divided the kingdom between the three. Let me tell you about Herod the Great and his family. It's, it's like Peyton Place. It would be a perfect soap opera. Herod the Great was a brilliant man. He was a brilliant builder. He was very aggressive. He was a very short man. I know this because I've been in his homes. On Masada and out by Bethlehem. Two palaces that he built. And I have to duck way down to get through his doorway. And his bathtub is... Still intact, very tiny. He was a short guy. And he had what you might say was a short man's complex. He was trying to prove that he was even better than the guys in Rome. He built a temple in Jerusalem. It took 47 years, and it still wasn't completed. He made it grandiose on a scale that Nehemiah never could have imagined. He built a fortress down by the Dead Sea called Masada. He took and built a mountain where there was a flat plain. He built a huge hill, carved the hill out in the center, and built his palace sunken into the mountain so that you couldn't see it from a distance. It looked just like a hill called Herodian. It's out by Bethlehem. It's the landmark that you see when you look toward Bethlehem from Jerusalem. Aggressive guy. Of course, he used slaves to do it. He had 12 wives. Many sons, wait a minute, he might have had, yeah, 12 wives, I think 13 or 14 sons, and he took and killed one of his wives, two of his sons, and his brother-in-law because he didn't want them to be in charge on the throne. He didn't want anybody singularly succeeding him. He was so paranoid, he knew that people hated him, that when he was close to dying, he commanded that the prominent looked up to citizens of Jerusalem, were found, taken out of their homes, and put in prison, arrested. The who's who of Jerusalem. And he said, as soon as you hear that I have died, you will execute the prominent citizens of Jerusalem. Because I know that when I die, nobody will weep. But I want to make sure that somebody weeps at the time of my death. And if they're killed, somebody will weep. That's the kind of man he was. There was a saying that went around that it was safer to be Herod's pig than to be his son. And it was. 
He was crazy. He died, and his sons are mentioned here, Herod Antipas and Herod Philip. They're going to be mentioned again because they're going to swap wives before the story's over. One becomes the Tetrarch, the ruler of Iturea, Trachonitis. One becomes the ruler of the area of Galilee. And uh, Philip, who is mentioned, his brother, the son of Herod the Great, names a city after himself, sort of like his dad, called Caesarea Philippi. In contrast to Caesarea by the sea, there's a city up north. You can still visit the ruins of it today, named after himself in honor of himself. Caesarea Philippi. And then verse 2, Annas and Caiaphas being high priests. Now, this is odd because there was always only one high priest. Annas was really the guy. He was the high priest all the Jews look up to as the high priest for the Jews. But in 15 AD, several years before this, Rome took over. And they wanted to be in charge not only of Jerusalem, but of the religious section of Jerusalem. And they put another high priest in, a relative of Annas, named Caiaphas. He was the puppet high priest of the Romans. But the Jews never recognized Caiaphas. They only recognized Annas. So he's mentioned here as the one whom the Jews looked up to rather than Caiaphas. Because there are actually two high priests, one that was truly the high priest, one that was there by rule of the Romans. Okay, in that time, in that reign, the word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias in the wilderness, and he went into all the region around Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, every mountain and hill shall be brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight, the rough ways made smooth, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Now that's a quote out of Isaiah 40 predicting the forerunner of, of the Messiah, who is John the Baptist. Now, I love John the Baptist. I've always been attracted to him because he doesn't fit the mold. And I always like somebody who breaks the mold, who's original. And this guy, you know... He came on the scene, and they threw the mold away. He was unique. Now, he was a PK. We know that, a pastor's kid, we'd call it today. He's the son of a priest named Zacharias. And by all means and purposes, he should have gone into the priesthood and fit the role. Instead, he was kind of like a Yule Gibbons, kind of like this hippie that lived out in the desert, a recluse who wore odd clothes camel's hair. Now, of course, today, you know, it'd be in style, and they'd probably be selling it for, you know, $300 a camel's hair uh, thing. Whatever's rustic and beat up, oh, sell it for more. But, you know, back then, it showed that this guy was roughing it, much like Elijah. And he's out in the wilderness. He's the cousin of Jesus. He was the baby when Elizabeth is in her house, and Mary's pregnant, and comes in and says, Elizabeth, I'm here. As soon as Elizabeth hears the greeting, she says, the baby leapt for joy in her womb. That's John the Baptist, the cousin of Jesus Christ, out there with a very unpopular message. It's not a seeker-friendly or a user-friendly message. And he wasn't there to see how many people he could get by this program or that program. Let's give away a free bicycle or candy bars to the blue team if they get more people into Sunday school this week. He wasn't into any of that. In fact... He was very unlike most prophets. Jeremiah was a prophet to Jerusalem. He was a prophet by going to Jerusalem. He was an urban prophet. He'd walk through the streets of the city. In contrast to him, this guy's way out of the way. Out in the desert, at the Jordan River, where the children of Israel crossed over many years before. And they came to him. They came to him. And... to tell you why I really like this guy. He didn't fear men. He didn't care about people's opinions. Now, don't you think people walked away saying, I don't like what that John the Baptist said at the sermon this morning. <laughs> he was a little tough. He said, we're a bunch of vipers. Does he expect us to come back to his church next week? I'm not coming. He didn't care. 
He wanted to please one. That was God. He was the spokesman for God. What he cared about is, what does God think of me? I like people like that. He wasn't trying to be obnoxious overtly. He was simply fulfilling the prophecies of Isaiah and Malachi, and he was filled with the Spirit, which meant he was controlled by the Spirit. These were God's words that he was speaking. Why was he a Jordan? I have an opinion about that. We don't know exactly why, but when the children of Israel crossed into the Promised Land, they crossed in the very area where John the Baptist was baptizing. By the way, it's the worst part to baptize in. It's where all the silt and mud. You have to humble yourself to be baptized in the Jordan River where John was baptizing. Now, we take groups up by the Sea of Galilee where the water runs out of the Sea of Galilee and it's pristine and beautiful and there's trees over it and we think, oh, this is a great, beautiful place. It's not that way where Jesus was baptized, where John was hanging out. It's stark desert and it's a silt bed. And I've walked in the river just for the experience, and I've sunk up to almost my waist. And it's gooey, thick mud. And for somebody to crawl in that water meant they meant business. It was not a swimming pool or the Pacific Ocean. Why at the Jordan? Because that's where they crossed on dry land. He's bringing them back to the memory. This is what you once were like. A people devoted to God. A people trusting God. In God for miracles, for daily sustenance. You trusted that God would bring you in the land. You trusted that rain would fall from heaven. You trusted that the walls of Jericho would tumble down. But now your religion has become hardened, ritualistic. You've left it. He's bringing them back to the place where they first entered the land. And they all came. Listen to his sermon the Sunday morning they came. He said to the multitudes, verse 7, that came out to be baptized by him, Brood of vipers! My message title for this morning is, Oh, You Snakes. That's really what it's translated. <laughs> Point number one, you are a brood of vipers. Point number two, you need to repent of your sins. This was not user-friendly material. Who has warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father, for I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. No mincing of words, eh? Shot from the hip, right from the shoulder. Now, these generally are not the popular prophets. The popular prophets are those who speak about health, wealth, and prosperity. They appeal to the fallen nature. God wants you rich, brother. God wants you always healed. You serve a living God. God wants you blessed. All. And listen, that appeals to the fallen nature, not the new nature. But they're always popular. In Jeremiah's day, Jeremiah wasn't popular. He said... The Babylonians are coming. This city will fall. It'll be in dust. It'll be in ruins. You need to change. They put him in prison. But there was another group of prophets who tickled the ears of the people and the king as they were out on the wall. They said, peace, peace. Oh, God, your God would never allow you to go into captivity. He wants just prosperity and wealth and health for all of you. They were wrong, and they perished. Jeremiah was right though he was unpopular. Now, for some reason, John's popular. People are out there. They've come from Jerusalem, perhaps just out of curiosity. Who's that odd guy we hear about on the desert screaming at the top of his i got to see this. Maybe just for novelty's sake. And his message was strong, and he, he mentioned something very important. He says, Don't begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father, for I say that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. He was speaking to people who had rested in their ethnic heritage. After all, we're Jewish. We're chosen people. You know what a, a slam that would be to say, these rocks God can make people just like you, sons of Abraham, like that. It's no big deal. You've trusted in your background, your heritage. As many people today trust, well, I've always been a Christian. I was raised in this church. I'm an American. Every American's a Christian. I was brought up in a church. You young whippersnapper. You have, you know. There's people who rest in the background, their ritual, and some even in their ethnicity. 
And so he breaks down that mold, that's that wall, and he gives a very familiar idiom to them. They understood about trees and orchards, and so he said, Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Being agrarian by nature, they understood this idiom. What do you call a tree without fruit? Firewood. It's no good. You cut it down. You use it for fuel to keep you warm. It's the idiom of judgment. They understood that. It's part of their heritage, part of their scriptures. He said, it's happening even now. God is bringing judgment to his people. So the people asked him, saying, what shall we do then? Now he was baptizing them. It was an outward sign of an inward change. He was baptizing people. And he was not saying that you will be saved by works. But they said, okay, now what, what should we do? How do we reflect this life that you are speaking about, this life of repentance? And so he gives very practical teachings on what a repentant life ought to look like. Okay, you want to see what a righteous life looks like practically? I'll take it out of the uh, uh, esoteric. I'll take it out of the uh, uh, philosophical realm. I'll put it in, in very easy language to understand. This is what he says. If you've got two tunics, let, uh, let him give to him who has none. He who has food, let him do likewise. The tax collectors also came to be baptized and said, Teacher, what should we do? He said, collect no more than what is appointed for you. Likewise, you soldiers, the soldiers asked him, saying, what shall we do? And they, he said to them, do not intimidate anyone or accuse falsely and be content with your wages. Now, John's out there baptizing. Jews were familiar with baptism in this way. Jews would baptize Gentiles who wanted to become Jews. They call, they're called proselytes. If you're Joe Gentile, who you live in another area like the Ethiopian or somebody else, you say, man, I want to worship God. Fine, you want to worship God? You have to be circumcised. You have to be baptized and go through the cleansing. Also, Jews would cleanse themselves before they went into the temple. But baptism as such was done for Gentiles. John the Baptist is doing it to the Jews, calling them to repentance, saying that, whether you're Jew or Gentile, you have to come through the gate of repentance. Now all the people were in expectation, verse 15, and all reasoned in their hearts about John, whether he was the Christ or not. You know, we, we recalled a few weeks ago how Josephus, the Jewish historian hired by the Romans, said that at this very time in history, there was a national expectation that the Messiah would be soon to come to deliver them from the oppression of Rome. And so they're excited. Man, this guy's hot. This, guy, this, this guy's not afraid of anybody. And look at the following he's got. Maybe he's the Messiah. He's going to set them at ease soon. John answered, saying to them, I indeed baptize you with water, but one mightier than I is coming, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Now there's the heart of a true servant right there. He's saying, I'm just the forerunner. I'm baptizing you with water, but I'm pointing to him. I'm pointing to the one who is to come. A true minister is a servant. And I like the term servant better than I like the term reverend. I certainly do. How would that look on a business card? Slave. Servant. Instead of doctor. Reverend. John is a true minister. There's some people that get into the ministry because they want notoriety. They want people to know who they are. I mean, I'm a minister. I'm important. Too important to pick up that paper. John says, I can't even, I'm not even worthy to unloose his shoe strap, his shoelace. And he's going to come and baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. The fire of judgment is what he's talking about. It's all in context here of what he just spoke about. His winnowing fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly purge his threshing floor and gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. And with many other exhortations he preached to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, being rebuked by him, concerning Herodias, 
his brother Philip's wife. Now remember I said studying Herod was a mess? Here's one of the reasons why. And for all the evils which Herod had done. Herodias was married to Herod Philip, tetrarch of Iturea. She left him and married his brother, Herod Antipas. But it gets worse. Herodias was the daughter of a guy by the name of Aristobulus. Wait a minute. She was the daughter of Herod the Great through Miriam, one of his wives, related to Aristobulus. So there's an incestuous kind of marriage going on because of her relationship to her father and brother, sort of. I mean, he had so many wives, but still a common dad. One of the Herods lived as a common citizen in Rome. While Herod Antipas visited Rome at a certain period of time, found his relative, and now remember, Herodias is married to her half-uncle at that time living in Rome, Antipas seduces her to marry him. So you got from family to family, and then she leaves him and goes to his brother. And I mean, this is just a mess. You know, I said it, it, it's a soap opera in the first century. And uh, John the Baptist, <laughs> he has the same message for everybody. I like this guy's gutsy. He didn't say, repent, everybody. Oh, but this is a very important person. I better say some nice things to him. It's the same message. He didn't care who it is. Hey, buckaroo, you're living in sin. I don't care if you're Herod or what. It's an unlawful divorce. It's an unlawful marriage. It's sin. Got him into trouble. John gets put in prison. Herodias hates his guts. Her daughter Salome dances a sensual dance at his birthday and has John the Baptist beheaded. And we'll quit at verse 22. When all the people were baptized, it came to pass that Jesus also was baptized. And while he prayed, the heaven was opened. Luke makes mention the fact that Jesus at his baptism prayed. Now, his theme is Jesus the perfect man. What an example for men this is. Jesus dependent upon God the Father in prayer. Men, we ought to be dependent upon God our Father in prayer. And that just doesn't mean separately, but I think corporately. I applaud men getting together, worshiping God together, desiring to love their wives, love the Lord. What a good example Jesus was of someone who depended upon his Father in prayer. And the Holy Spirit descended in bodily form, not as a dove, but like a dove, upon him, and a voice came from heaven which said, You are my beloved Son, and you I am well pleased. So we have the mention of all three persons of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Son being baptized, the Holy Spirit alighting upon him as of a dove, and the Father speaking from heaven, This is my beloved Son, of whom I am well pleased. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the triunity in the Scripture, often appearing. Now, some people say, well, wait a minute. The Bible never mentions the word Trinity. So? Why does the word have to be there? The teaching is there. It's plain. The word millennium isn't in the Scripture, but the millennial doctrine is a thousand years Christ will reign upon the earth. Anybody can figure out that a thousand years, another name for it is millennium. And anybody can figure out that when the Bible says God the Father, God above all is, the, is God, that Jesus is God and the Holy Spirit of God, that you have a triunity. So the Bible mentions the teaching often. Now we get into a very exciting part next week. I wish we had time to cover it tonight. That's the genealogy of Jesus Christ. You say, that's exciting? Oh, man. When you understand it, it blows your mind. Because God, at this point, has a major problem. The odds are stacked up against himself as far as having any Messiah, any son, upon the throne of David. Because at this time, the throne of David has been cursed in its perpetuity. God has a real problem. How is he going to fulfill the promise of having a Messiah to rule from David's throne? We'll discuss that next week. Father, we thank you tonight for the body of Christ getting together. We acknowledge that Jesus is the head of the church.
and that all of us are servants of you. Whether we are pastors or worship leaders or deacons or elders, whether we are ushers or Sunday school teachers or we have just come as guests, there's not one person in this assembly that is more important than another. We're all at the very same level. We've all come to worship. 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 